November 20th, 2011, lecture discussion number 46 on the Book of Romans. And yes, you heard me correctly. We are returning to Romans today, and along with uh, Edgar Andrews, who made God. We're returning back whence uh, we left uh, 12 weeks ago. And we have left in the rearview mirror now the Hebrew betrothal wedding ceremony pattern. Very important pattern. You must know that pattern. It shows up all over the Old Testament. Um, I have a little unfinished business from last week first, though, uh, because uh, uh, going by the system that if somebody comes and talks to me about something, there's 10 or 12 of you who, who thought the same thing. Certainly on the Internet they will, um, more like 100 then. And now, uh, so I thought I would address it. In the post-game session where people do come up and talk to me, the sermon aftermath, if you will, uh, Jack came up uh, to discuss step eight which is the departure step, as you know, of the 12 steps. The departure of the bridegroom. And, um, and as usual, Jack is a great thinker, as you know, and thinks of all kinds of things. And he uh, was concerned about what I call the implied why question. Uh, I assume after as many times as I have done this, uh, especially to you folks, but it's not good to assume that as, uh, with regard to the Internet. So I thought his point was well taken. Don't worry about you. You've been here a long time. But uh, the implied why is, is in everything I do. And I didn't really go into the why of any of this because last week I, I did it as rapidly as I could. It was an overview. And what was my goal? It was just to finish the list and get it behind me. And, and that, of course, is impossible. You can't finish anything that's scriptural. There's always more. I could just bog down in the Hebrew betrothal system for two years easily. The, um, there's more to, to encompass. Never assume that a biblical study is comprehensive. Never think that somebody finished a subject and that he found or she found everything if you attend a Bible study. The Bible is not designed that way. There's always more. Uh, it, it's a truth that should uh, make us ask the obvious question. How is it that you can never end anything that is biblical? How could that be accomplished? Who is the author of such a book? How did this complexity get here? It never ends. It just never, never ends. And that's always the case. Anyway, back to Jack. Jack thought that, uh, that uh, my, uh, what I wanted to do last week was to show you as much as I could with regard to Moses and Aaron and their departure and how it plays with the departure of, uh, of Christ and the departure of the bridegroom. And Jack saw insufficiency there, and uh, that is because of the implied why being omitted. Now... When I say implied why, what do I mean? I, I don't want you ever to conclude, especially you folks on the Internet, uh, that the betrothal wedding pattern is the determining factor. It is a pattern. And if you conclude that it is, has determinacy or that it has authority, um, then you're in error and you have failed to look at what I call, again, the implied why. What I mean by that is though it is certain and it is clear that Christ is following all 12 steps, He's completing them in order. He has done nine consecutive steps. 
He only has three to remain. He did the nine, the first nine perfectly in order, made no omissions at all. He did them as plain as he could, as clear as he could. Uh, but as the designer of the process, it must be understood that Jesus Christ is not subject to his own process. And if you thought that he was or that the process had power over him, uh, then that again is an error. In other words, he departs not because the order requires that he depart. His ascension and the consecration, the subsequent consecration, or the set apart, the sanctification, the cleansing of the church, both of those are sovereign um, and both are occurring and would occur apart from this 12-step pattern. The pattern provides a template. It's an explanation. It's not a control. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ provides the design and the control. And don't make the process the controlling entity. And so that's, uh, I, I hope that works it out for you. Let me try it a different tact here. The key to understanding the Jewish betrothal wedding system ordinance is to ask a question at each step. What's that question? I gave it away. Why? That's absolutely right. The implied why. Every time I, a bride is selected, why? He departs. Why? The bride has to be cleansed. Why? See, the designer puts the template, the pattern, but there is a why, an implied why in every single step. And you must ask, ask that question at every step. Why does Jesus Christ ascend or depart? And that's the key to understanding it. The ordinance and the template. Why does he ascend and depart? What is the purpose of his departure? What is the cause, if you will? If that be a human way of thinking. What causes him to depart? What causes him to depart? Let me ask that question. It's a trick question. What causes him to depart? He does. He is the cause of his departure. Does that make sense to you? Okay, good. Jesus Christ is systematically repairing his creation. He is systematically solving sin, both angelic sin and human sin. Okay? That's his plan. Never separate the angelic host, the angelic host, out of this equation. We do it all the time. That is narcissism. We think it is always about us. We have an entire supernatural realm up there that is every bit as involved in this process of solving sin as we are. Okay, the solution to free will sin requires that he leave physical earth. Why does it require that? Because he determined that it requires that. He is the determiner, if you will. He has the power of determinacy. Determinancy. Sorry, barely got it up. So, the solution to free will sin requires that he leave physical earth after his crucifixion, his entonement, and his resurrection. Exactly seven times seven plus one, 24 hour days after his resurrection. In other words, he will ascend, he will depart 50 days from the day of his resurrection. Just as Israel will be on Mount Sinai 50 days from the day they left the Red Sea. Who determined that? He did. The process isn't making him do it. 
He is the maker of the process. So what questions do you ask? Why is he doing it this way? And he is, again, the one that decides that it is required that he do it this way. Okay? His departure has lasted how long now? Almost 2,000 years. Make the case that it is 2,000 years. Why? Why not seven years? Why 2,000 years? And the re- and people's inability to if answer that question has led to all kinds of doctrinal problems. Number one is what? Replacement theology, which means what? That Israel is no longer Israel, has been replaced by the church. They couldn't figure out what happened to Israel. Three hundred years after Christ left, they all decided, well, he must have abandoned Israel. No. He did not abandon Israel. But what is the purpose? What is his purpose for the 2,000 years? What's he doing? He's waiting 2,000 years. Why? He injected 2,000 years into this process. Or more. We don't know how much. Why did he pick that number? Because he's picked it. Let me ask the obvious question there. Who benefits from God waiting 2,000 years? Raise your hand. We benefit. That should be apparent, right? Yay for the 2,000 year wait, huh? What is essentially being questioned with respect to the purpose of Christ's departure is his patience and his long-suffering. Or why does God wait? Why does God allow time to pass? The, the monists who mock God, the ones who believe there is no supernatural element at all, that we will cease to exist when we die, that's monism, they mock God by saying, if there is a God, why does he allow so much evil? It's the same question, isn't it? Why does he wait and why does he allow so much evil is the exact same question. Do you see that? Why does he wait? Yeah, for our sakes, obviously. Why does he allow so much evil? This is where I always say, when you wonder that question, the first thing you do is what? Buy a mirror. And ask, why does he allow me to exist as evil as I am? That is for your benefit, isn't it? I just am stunned by, I don't know what to call it, uh, the simplicity of that question. And why it is so asked so often as if it is unanswerable. It is a, a very, very elementary question. But it is given so much attention. Why does God wait? Why does God allow time to pass? That is the same as why is God long-suffering? In 2 Peter 3.15, let's go ahead. It provides a straightforward answer, as you would expect. There's some, somewhere in the Bible, there's going to be an answer to this question of why does God wait? Why does God allow evil? And there is in two places, Exodus 34, 5 through 9 and 2 Peter 3:15. Let me read it. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So let me put it another way. The long-suffering, the waiting, the purpose of the departure is for salvation. The reason he departs, 
The reason he waits, the reason he is patient, the reason that he allows what he allows is for salvation. Whose salvation? Us. Good news for us. Exodus 34, 5 through 9. Let's take a look at that. This is a definitive definitive response to why does God allow evil in Scripture. Here we go. Verses 5 through 9, 34, chapter of Exodus. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. This is Moses on the mountain with new tablets. A second time, the second 40 days, if you will. Moses had 80 days on the mountain with God. How smart is Moses? My goodness. And that's, that's also stunning to me is that people do not. What do you think he did up there? He literally had his mind filled with wisdom to the brim. That's Moses. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Y-H-V-H. The unpronounceable or the ineffable, whichever description you prefer. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving sin or forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste. In other words, Moses quickly, when he heard this, made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. What is Moses doing there? What Moses always does. What's he doing? Trying to save The people of Israel, the rebellious, adulterous, stiff-necked, nasty, dirty, crummy people who is a picture of who? Us. Get them here. Nothing is more ignorant than to say, man, those Jews are bad. I wish I'm glad I'm not like them. You find that, you are in the Bible, aren't you? Because that very thing happened with the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you've got to figure out what a Pharisee is and don't be what? Know who you are. Know who they are. We are all in what? Sewage. Don't run around going, my sewage smells better than your sewage. That's insane. It's indefensible. And it is simply not biblical. Okay, the long-suffering, the waiting, the purpose of the, of the departure is for salvation. And Exodus 34, 5 through 9 tells us there's two proclamations. Notice that. At the making of the new tablets, the second contract, the second 40 days, the first tablets haven't been broken at the adultery of the golden calf. At the second one, we have two proclamations made. The name of the Lord, YHVH. And then added information now to Exodus 13, or I'm sorry, 3:13 and 14. So I have YHVH and I have the I am, right? I have both of those names now 
given to Moses. So, the I am is what? What's he mean when he says the I am? It says that he is the creator of the created order, if you will. The creator of space, energy, matter, and time. That is what I am means. Here, YHVH, or if you wish, Yahweh, he is merciful. He's the giver of grace. He's long-suffering. He's the forgiver of sins, and he's the ender of sin. All of that is in 34, 5, and, um, and 6, and 7. And there's your answer to the purpose of step eight, the departure of the bridegroom, the injection by God of 2,000 years into his process that he's designed is for salvation because he is the giver of mercy and the giver of grace. That is the meaning of his name, Yahweh, R-Y-H-V-H. He is good. He is truth. Do you see that? Good and truth. Now, as you're aware, that gets me in trouble. On the internet. I say he is good. People get mad at me. They've asked me, as every, said most of the comments are positive. Yeah, there are a few that don't like me. And this is one of the reasons. Many churches today don't teach that God is always good. They teach that God is the author of evil. He is the origin of evil. He has made evil. That's what they teach. They're all over this city. They also think uh, that he is the Indian. He's not the giver of salvation. He's the Indian giver of salvation. No disrespect to Indians. They teach us that he gives salvation and then he takes it back. Or that humanity can scrub it off. What are they scrubbing off? The blood. Humanity can overcome his covering of blood. Man can remove that blood and discard it. And I submit that if we had the power to remove his covering of blood or his salvation that he gives us, that none, none would be saved. We'd all do it. How come we'd all do it? Because we're idiots. That's why. There would be no salvation for any. Ultimately, we have no ability to save ourselves or keep ourselves saved. Know that. We cannot earn our salvation or even earn the keeping of our salvation. I'm sorry if your church teaches you that. And I, as you know, I'm not really sorry. That's a fake sorry. God is and must be the giver and the keeper. Quit putting yourself into the process as if you have something of value to offer it. You don't. I don't. And he is and must be always good, which is why he waits and why he departs. He waits and he departs because it is good and because he is good. He extends his mercy, his grace, his invitations, but he will return. Why does he return? He doesn't have to return. He chooses to return. What's he do when he returns? He ends sin. What's that when he does that? What is that? Why doesn't he allow you, why doesn't he allow billions of people to stay in sin and be as evil and as wicked as they wish to be, as they would progress to be? Why doesn't he allow that? He doesn't allow it 
Why not? Do they want him to allow it? Oh, yeah. Don't bother me. But he will. He'll end sin. Why? Very important question. And the answer to that, yeah, he will and must end sin because he is pure and absolute good. And pure and absolute goodness, by definition, demands that he in sin, requires justice. And notice now how very often the answers to so many questions and doctrinal issues is what? God is good. Why does he allow this world to be in free will evil? For salvation. Of who? Of the free will evil people. Why does he even have salvation for free will evil people? Why are any saved? Because he's good. How hard is this? Never have a position where you conclude that God is not good. I'm going to say this from a human standpoint. Uh, this, but you have to have the implied why or you'll get confused. Uh, his goodness requires that he depart. His goodness requires that he return. The pattern that he designed here is for what purpose? It's not controlling him. The pattern has no controlling capability. Why did he give this the pattern? I gave it away right there. Why is he following the pattern? I'll say it better this time. Try to make it seem more complex. Why is he following the pattern? It's his pattern, but why did he reveal it to us? I gave it away again. You got to teach. Why does he want us to be, to know about the pattern? What good is it? No, that's a great question. What good is it to him? Does it affect him at all? It is a what to us? It is a gift. What are we supposed to do with the gift of this pattern? We're supposed to learn it. We're supposed to cherish it. And it will do what for you? Yeah, it'll comfort you. It'll give you peace. He's good. People ask me all the time, especially at the death of a beloved animal or family member or friend. Or they say it to me all the time. How do I know that he's going to come for me? How do you know he's going to come for you? Because he's good. The very question that you asked is what? It's an insult. It's disrespectful. His goodness requires that he depart. His goodness requires that he returns. The pattern that he designs is for our comfort. But ask the implied why. Why did he create in the first place? This is a trick question. Why did he create angels and humans? That's a trick question. Why did he create angels and humans with free will? That's the answer. You can't go wrong here. You just keep repeating the same answer. You win every time. You get a skittle. Yeah, you're always going to go home with a skittle. Start at rule one. God is good, always good, cannot be anything but good. If you ever assign anything to him that is ungood, what have you done? You have assigned characteristics of yourself to him. That's anthropomorphism. Quit doing that. As an aside now, find places in the Old Testament where, where Moses stalls for time. 
Because he knows God's going to return at some point and do what? In sin. How does he know God is going to return at some point and end sin? Because Moses knows something. He knows 34 of Exodus 5 through 9. He knows that second 40 days he learns something. The very name of God says good. And he knows goodness requires that sin be ended. And is this the day? Because Israel deserves it, doesn't he? Oh my goodness, they deserve it. And he knows it. And he's once again injecting time. He's stalling, isn't he? In order to protect Israel from judgment. That is the typology of Moses. That's Deuteronomy 18.15. Find places where judgment is delayed, but substitutionary death of Moses results. Where is that? Numbers 20. Now you know why Moses wrote Psalm 118.26. And why Israel must understand it. What is Psalm 118.26? It is the second thing that is shouted. Okay, right? It's step 10. It is blessed is he who comes. Israel has to shout that. Let me reword it for you. I'm going to reword blessed is he who comes. Say it another way. Good is he who comes. Why is he coming for Israel? Because he's good. Why didn't he abandon them or replace them or discard them? Throw them in the junk pile. Did they deserve it? But he didn't do it. Why not? His very name says merciful, full of grace, long-suffering, good, truth. Say it another way. Merciful is he who comes. Or long-suffering is he who returns. The giver of grace is he who returns. And I hope that makes sense to you. That is why Moses wrote 118.26, a psalm. And that is why Israel has to shout it at Christ. Because it is an understanding of what? His goodness. Okay. We're about to read Romans chapter 4, which is the definition of faith or belief. And I can start erasing this. And this is a struggle for people as well. And again, there is an implied why. Why is the system that God has of salvation have this component of Faith or belief, whichever one you want. You have belief, and you have, or I'll call it faith, and you have grace, and you have the contrast. What is the contrast? What is the opposite of that? Okay? We gotta figure out, because the opposite is always around, isn't it? So we're about to read Romans 4. Which is the definition. You've got to have the definition of belief and faith as God defines it. Don't have your definition of faith or belief. Have it with God's definition. Make sure your definition is God's definition. And you're going to contrast it with works. And what's the definition of works that's important to you? God's definition of works, not your definition. So you've got to have God's definition of belief and faith, God's definition of grace, God's definition of works. 
And it's important that you, we, us, discard our definitions and, and make certain that they are replaced with God's definitions. Okay? Again, very, very, very many churches. I'm going to get in trouble again today. Certainly the overwhelming majority of churches today, the contemporary church, they have human definitions of these terms. And they love their human definitions of them. They're very happy with their human definitions of belief, belief and faith. And they make money off of their human definitions. And they have no interest or intention of jettisoning their cash machine. Irrespective of its deep conflict with Romans 4, which we're about to read. As you've heard me say many times, works-based salvation. Let me just stop right there. Works-based salvation is what? That is a stunning contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as works-based salvation. Works-based works. Barely say it. Works-based death. That's what you got. No such thing. Other than that, the old adage: "Follow the money." Boy, that really works here. Men seek power. Humanity seeks power over other humanities. They just do over other humanity. They seek power. And power begets what? What's the reason they want power? Some people just love controlling other people. You find a church that loves telling you what to do, you run. Throw chairs at the pastor. Get out of there. Run away from churches that think that they have the authority to tell you where to live, what job to have, who to marry, all that stuff. That's pure garbage. Sorry, not really. Fake sorry. Follow the money. Power begets wealth, which begets more power, which becomes corruption really fast. It's simple, really. Flee from those who insist on inserting themselves. What is God's salvation system? There it is, right there. Belief, faith, get grace. Nowhere in there is somebody else. Be very suspicious and run from people that decide that they're going to put themselves right here. Belief, faith, plus our church's stuff and what our church thinks and what our church says and, of course, what our pastor says. I'm going to mention, uh, I don't, I should, you all know who he is. I'm going to write his name here. It's a great story. I can't put it over the Internet. That's, he goes to a church, I won't tell you which one, because that will get him in trouble. But in that church, it is the role of the men of the congregation, when the pastor comes down off of the podium, for all the men to stand up. What we call in the church business, man worship. You see it in sports as well. Every man in that church stands up, but not this guy. He won't stand up. That is why he comes here. Don't stand up and worship some man. No 
undo it. He wants power over you. Why does he want power over you? Same reason they make you cry. You have tears in your eyes, you can't see your wallet, right? Same thing. I got power over you, I can get your money. And more money makes more power. And then eventually the corruption. Flee from those who insist on inserting themselves or some process of themselves or their church into God's salvation system. Who attempt to convince you that they are somehow necessary to your access to God. Now there are huge denominations where you have to have a certain person that represents the church at your Gravesite or at your burial, I'm sorry, that they have to pray for you after you're dead or just before you die. Uh, you have to have certain things done to you or you won't be saved. And what do they want in exchange for that? Yeah, it's always about follow the money, baby. Flee from those who insist on inserting themselves or their system into God's salvation and who attempt to convince you that they are necessary to your access to God. They are described as evil by God, the people that do so. Look at Matthew 23. They are called ensnares of His people, hunters of souls, Ezekiel 13. Ezekiel 13 is essential reading. If you've never read Ezekiel 13, man, if that's all you go home with today from me, or those of you who are listening on the internet, read Ezekiel 13, and then ask the question of every church you walk into, is that happening here? And if it is, get out. I don't care how much fun you have there. I don't care how much you like it. I don't care how interesting the pastor is, how good the music is. I don't care how beautiful the facility is. If Ezekiel 13 is happening in your church, for those of you who are listening to me all over the world, get out. It's necessary reading for young Christians. Beware of those who insist that works are required for salvation. And as we read and study Romans 4, we're going to go back as well. We're going to add as well Edgar Andrews, Who Made God. Specifically, chapters 4 and 5 of that book. So next week, bring, uh, bring yourselves, bring your book, uh, Who Made God, and have read chapters 4 and 5. That's pouring concrete and ferrets and fallacies and rabbit holes and such. We're going to be dealing with Victor Stenger. Uh, Victor Stenger has an assertion that science somehow disproves the existence of God. How does this fit with belief, faith, let me get rid of this name so he doesn't feel like he's been. How does this assertion that science disproves the existence of God fit with belief, faith, grace, and works, and all the rest of that I just discussed? Well, I hope you'll begin to work that out as you read both Romans 4 and chapter 4 and 5 of Who Made God. I also hope that you recognize Victor Stenger's assertion that science somehow disproves the existence of God, uh, and you recognize immediately that uh, that is something that is in violation with Chronister's law. Mr. Stenger, Dr. Stenger, probably doesn't know that he has violated Chronister's law. Now, perhaps you've heard of it, and sometimes it's referred to as Chronister's premise. But I prefer Chronister's law for obvious reasons. 
what does Chronister's Law say? It says this. Chronister's Law states that a supernatural entity or component cannot be created by a physical process. Let me repeat that. A supernatural entity or component cannot be created by a physical process. To make one quick application of Chronister's Law, your mind and your brain. Louis's dad, Dr. Mayer, came to me, what, two, three years ago, maybe longer than that now. And he said, if you can do one thing for your congregation, probably five years ago, if you can do one thing for your congregation, would you revisit the mind-brain problem? Because he understands as a physician the mind-brain problem. The mind is a spiritual component, and it cannot, according to Chronister's law, which is inviolable, has never been disproven, in spite of all of the experiments to the contrary, Chronister's law has prevailed. I'm only being slightly funny about that. The mind is a spiritual component that cannot be the result of a physical process of the brain. The neurons and the electrical impulses and the electrical uh, system, if you will, is a physical system, and it cannot create your mind and did not create your mind. If you don't believe me, again, read Chronister's Law. You're not laughing. The mind is distinct from the brain. It's called substance dualism. The mind is a different substance than the brain. The brain is a physical substance. The mind is a non-physical substance. Radical dualism says that the mind and the brain are entangled. And I like that term. That's a quantum mechanics term. I agree with that. Radically entangled to where we can't figure out how they work together. Two, these two different substances. Entanglement's a perfect word for it. And we'll get into entanglement more on that later. Einstein called entanglement a spooky truth. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, Stenger, Dr. Stenger declares God to be a material entity subject to discovery by physical processes and measurements. Stenger wants to measure God. And if he can't measure God, what does he decide immediately? If he cannot come up with a physical process, a measuring process, by which he can determine God's existence, then what does he declare? That he doesn't exist. Because his physical processes fail to discover God, he determines that God is indetectable or undetectable by physical testing. God, therefore, is not existent, according to Stenger. And that passes for intellectual reasoning nowadays. That is the height of what academia can do for you. Welcome to college. Welcome to the East Coast, especially. (laughs) I don't know how to describe it. It is childlike thinking. It is so shallow, it is beyond shallow. It is childless. I would expect that out of a third or fourth grader. But it baffles the church today. Oh, no. Because science cannot detect God with physical processes, God is therefore non-existent. That is their conclusion. It is astonishing to me that that has any strength at all. Okay. We will now start the sermon. Let's read Romans 4. Okay, here we go. 
Romans 4, verse 1. We'll only go a little bit. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? That's a rhetorical question. What's implied? What has he found according to the physical? What's implied? He's found nothing. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? This is Genesis 15, 6, by the way. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness or imputed, if you will. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So now you're beginning to see the contrast develop. We have two things. We have belief, faith, and grace. We do not have any human being in there. We do not have any church. We do not have any ordinances of the church. We don't have any traditions of anybody. All we have is belief, faith, and grace that are necessary if you wish to call it necessary. On the other side, we have works. And what else do we have? Debt. Here we have righteousness. Down here we have debt. So those are our two that we're discussing. But to him who does not work, what does he mean by that? To him who does not have an obedience-based, tradition-based, ordinance-based, gotta-do-something-to-be-saved system, but believes on him and who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessings of, a blessedness of man, of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So you got your choice. You can have righteousness imputed or you can have sin imputed. And by the way, uh, notice a couple of things. Things that should have leapt up off the page and smacked you aside the head. Abraham had no righteousness He had no means of self-acquirement of righteousness. His righteousness had to be imputed to him. And imputed is wonderful. It is an accounting term. It is a financial term. Okay? Financial, it is also a legal term. Both financial and legal. That's fantastic. Accounting, meaning that it is credited. There is a transference So in other words, righteousness had to be transferred to Abraham. He had no way of acquiring it. He had no self-ability. Abraham's financial, he had a financial sheet. What was on his financial sheet? Debt. He also had a legal sheet. What was on his legal sheet? Death. And he had to trade those sheets in. He had to get rid of the debt, and he had to get rid of the death. So on his financial sheet and on his indictment papers, Abraham had nothing, no righteousness. All he had was debt and death, or sin, if you will. He can't separate sin from death. But suddenly, if you will, it is credited to him. Righteousness is transferred to Abraham. Think of it, if you will, because you're all computer people and I'm not. But you have these two spreadsheets, and they're filled with debt, and they're filled with 
charges, indictments, and you're doomed, and a click happens, and poof, they're both, all that is gone, and righteousness is in its place. And there's two obvious questions. Where did God get the righteousness that he gave to Abraham? What is the only place he could get it from? He has to get it from himself. There's no other source of righteousness but him. And why did God do this for Abraham? See the implied why. And the answer, of course, is in Genesis 15:6, which is quoted here by Paul in Exodus 34, 5-9. Because God is good and because of belief, if you will. That's a, a very simple way of putting it, and I'll make it more complicated later more doctrinally correct. But I want you also to notice that that system is in complete contrast to him that works. Him that works has debt and death. Belief, grace, goodness is completely apart from any, absolutely apart from any kind of human works. They are opposites. And what fascinates me today is in the church today, we have churches who do this. They have what they call this doctrine. Okay? Because I'm a math guy. They have the grace doctrine, but they say you are kept in grace by works. And they call it grace plus works. And what did I just tell you Romans said? Grace and works are complete, absolute opposites. So if I have, I'll call grace 100, and if I have works, it is the exact opposite of that. So what is it? It is negative 100. So grace plus works is what, mathematically? Why would anybody have this doctrine? But it is the predominant doctrine in the church today. By far, overwhelming. How many churches in this city have a grace-based salvation doctrine? There's hardly any that do. They're almost all works here. Might be three or four, maybe five. I hope ten. I doubt it. This prevails. And this is foundational. This is pouring concrete. That's why you have to read chapter 4 of Who Made God. If your foundation is bad, ask Louis. I have seen a frozen foundation. One that wasn't heated. And so it went to 30 below and the concrete froze before it had a chance to harden. What can you do to it, Louis, when it does that? Yeah, he said, cry, for those of you, he's in the foundation. You can drive your fist through it. It is white powder. Okay? If you are adding this works-based system to your belief, your foundation is frozen and rotten and will support nothing. You will have misery and error and delusion what one commentator called life bad. Life bad. 
Grace plus works, life bad. Works-based salvation, life bad. He said this, you are miserably deluded and it is love to tell you so. Okay? So next week, read Romans 4 and read Who Made God, chapters 4 and 5, and we will take on with the simple Victor Stinger assertion. Let's rise and be dismissed.